that awesome? <laughs> Dennis and is it Haley or Hallie? Hallie. Hallie Smith. That's the brand new name, Smith. <laughs> Thanks for coming today. And you're from Michigan. Okay, well, I guess you know that from my wife. She has her mom in Upper Peninsula. She's a youper, sort of. <laughs> All right, let's pray. We'll get into a lesson today and then we'll keep moving on for the regular service. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be in church. We pray for your blessings and your help on your word. Help us, Father, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. And we pray to bless those who are of the classes today and be with those on the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Go to Exodus chapter 17. Working our way through Exodus. And it's been slow going because there's a lot of things in Exodus that we can learn from. Exodus chapter 17. You remember that the Old Testament is written for our admonition. And so we learn a lot of things about ourselves from the book of Exodus and from the Old Testament scriptures. And so for those who say that you should not bother with the Old Testament, I would say you should bother with the Old Testament because it's good for us in the New Testament. For the New Testament Christian and the New Testament church. We learn a lot of lessons about ourselves from the Old Testament Hebrews. And so we're going to look at chapter 17 of Exodus. I was hoping to get to chapter 18, but I think I'm going to be stalled uh, in a good way. So let's look at chapter 17. We have a continuation of murmuring. Not a good thing, but that's what happened. We have a command from God and then combat with Amalek. Three things to cover today. And if we can get past that, we'll get to chapter 18. Chapter 17 of Exodus. Verses 1 through 4. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? Verse 3. And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses, and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. Now here they go again, complaining, murmuring against Moses all along the way, they're referring them. They've traveled about 160 miles after they left Egypt. They're, they're marching toward uh, the place where God would give them the law at Mount Sinai. There's much people, much cattle, much uh, animals, uh, sheep, goats, and camels. Along the way, so far, would you not think that they had water along the way? Would you not think that somewhere along the way they would find water? Either by digging or God, again, miraculously provided for them water. Which nothing after three days or so they would find water to drink. Think about this. Would God leave them destitute, not having any water? I think not. And yet they were complaining against Moses. They're blaming their leader, their shepherd. And they're asking and complaining about him again. They were thirsty before. God provided water for them before. And so in chapter 15, how quickly they forget what God has done for them. And we will find many lessons and applications about ourselves in this chapter about New Testament Christianity and the New Testament church. And so quickly they forget about how God provided for them at Elam. And so in chapter 16, they forgot again. Now in chapter 17, this time they're complaining against him. Their murmuring is so severe, Moses says these words to God. Verse number four, they be almost ready to stone me. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's pretty serious complaining. They'd be ready to stone me. Of course, uh, that means to kill him. Well, that's a form of capital punishment. And so they're ready to kill this man who has been so good to them, has led them through all the trials and hardships and miraculous delivery from Egypt. And yet now, because they're a little bit thirsty, uh, a little bit uh, not too convenient for them, they're ready to stone him. That's pretty severe complaining. It's one thing to just, eh, why'd he do that? Eh, I don't like what he did. Why'd they put the piano over there? Why'd they put the organ over there? Why is the carpet red? Red makes my eyes hurt. Why didn't they make it, why didn't they make it green? Because I like green. Well, why, why? All these things can happen. You'll find out that the people of God in the Old Testament are like a New Testament congregation in a negative way. Now, let's be real. People are people, and people complain about a lot of things. Have you not found that to be true in the life of it as a Christian? Or has your life been so sheltered that you find that all Christians are saints? Or angelic? Are all Christians angelic? Why, well, you're not angelic. <laughs> and if you're not angelic, can you imagine people in a church, how they also can find room and be quick to murmur against their leader? Verse number one, all the congregation, it says, all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed, and then in verse number two, the people, the people, the people, they chide with Moses, they fussed at Moses, fussed about Moses. Before they fussed at Moses, you can be sure of one thing, they fussed with each other about Moses. Before they spoke to him and fussed about him publicly, they fussed about him privately. That's the way things go. You don't come out boldly to fuss against someone publicly unless you have first gotten support privately among people, your peers, and you get a sense that, you know, there's a lot of us here, it could be three. In this case, there's more than three. It could be 300. But in this case, it could be 3,000. Well, that's a lot of people, 300 or 3,000. And when that is circling like that within the crowd, within the congregation, within the people, you feel emboldened to approach the one you're fussing about because you think everybody feels the same way. Well, truthfully, a lot of folks feel like a few people and they did fuss about him and toward him publicly. Uh, a bad situation here. Was Moses doing anything wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Was Moses guilty of anything immoral? And of course, we would say, was he guilty of anything doctrinally wrong? Of course, that's not the case. But what was the problem here? The problem is they were on their feet traveling. The problem was they were going through a wilderness. The problem was it was a little bit uncomfortable. The problem was they had a life of ease back in Egypt. I mean, they were slaves, but they had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. All they wanted to drink. So in that sense, they were, quote, well-fed, well-cared-for. It was like being in prison because they were, and like in real prisons, you get food, you get water, you get three meals a day, cable TV, you even might have a remote box. You have a lot of freedoms and privileges in prison, but you're in prison. When guys get out of prison, now they're on their own after seven years of being in prison, of being incarcerated. Now it's like, no one's telling me what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to think. I've been told how to think. Now I'm on my own. I have to find my own job, get a bus pass, apply for work, and it's overwhelming. And then they say, you know what? It was better being in, being in prison because at least I had food. At least didn't have to work for it. Didn't have to worry about where it's going to come from. 
So they long for being back there in a really weird sense because they had security. Maybe the Hebrews had that in their mind. And yet they were slaves. Now they're free and they're still complaining. I think they've lost perspective about who they are and what they were, don't you? I think they've lost a sense of we're free people. This is a little bit hard out here and we're kind of not sure where we're going, but we're free people. I think they didn't have a sense about that. Well, uh, they had a problem. Uh, maybe it was their expectation. Maybe they thought it's going to be pretty easy once they get out of Egypt. After all, so far, it was pretty easy. All they got to do is follow. Uh, Moses would be in the song, Moses knows the way through the wilderness. All we got to do is follow. <laughs> kind of like that children's kind of chorus. But uh, maybe the expectation was uh, a life, a journey of ease. But it wasn't that, was it? It was not at all. Uh, sometimes ministerial students, as what they're called, Bible school students, Bible college kids, uh, future preacher boys, future pastors, ministers, and so on like that, they have this idealistic view of what life is going to be as a Christian serving God full time. They're excited about that. They want to do that. They feel called to do that. They go to school. They fit into Bible education. And now they're going to go into the field. What happens then? A lot of things can happen then. Uh, the first time I went to Tennessee for college, uh, it was culture shock. I thought it was going to be great. I was going to go there to play baseball, and that was what I was, that's what I was focusing on. I didn't know it was going to be hard. You have to study. What? You have to study in college? Unbelievable. What? You have to get up, go to classes? Unbelievable. So my, my impression of going to college for the first time was going to be pretty easy, but it wasn't. It got very hard. And then, uh, you don't play baseball until the spring. No baseball in the in the fall and in the winter, of course, you got to go through basketball season and all these kind of things and wait, 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 wait. It wasn't so much fun waiting. And then also, when it comes to ministerial students and so on who feel very definitely called to into the ministry, when they get out of school, they go into the field, they begin to realize that people are real people. It's not all theory. It's not all theory. It's now you're dealing with real people who don't like Christ, don't like the gospel, don't like the Bible. They're, their work is so so secular that they don't, they challenge everything you say. Well, it's not challenging Bible school. It's really not challenging Bible school. It's not really not maybe, maybe a little bit, but not in a, in a sense of face-to-face -face and eyeball to eyeball and, and ram to ram, but that's what it's like. And then it could happen where the ministerial student, so-called, uh, he faces reality in the field and he gets discouraged because it's not so easy. It's hard, the way is hard. Maybe they were uh, unfulfilling their expectation. I'm just surmising, I'm guessing here. It was very different from Egypt, but uh, they were free people, and now with their independence, they found out it's not so comfortable. They have to walk. They can't call Uber, they have to walk. Can't call a cat, can't run a bus. A lot of uncertainty along this road uh, that God's leading them with Moses, and so, and then they get thirsty. Did God ever forsake them along the way so far? They forgot that, didn't they? Did the Lord abandon them just because when they cried to him, he didn't answer immediately? Sometimes people think that. Yeah. They're in the hospital, prayed to God for help, never prayed before, or never did go to church, but then they're, they're in a jam, and so they pray to God, God doesn't answer them right away, so they get upset with that. They say, well, Christianity, what are you folks coming here praying for us for? Not, God doesn't answer me. And so they could have almost the same feelings, but uh, the Lord didn't fight for them. Fact. The Lord did watch over them. Fact. 
the Lord did deliver them all true. And so the people, the congregation, the people did chide with Moses. It was not justified. It wasn't warranted. It wasn't good. It was very carnal for them to chide against Moses. It was their fault. It was their problem. It was their mind. It was their outlook. It was their personal problems. And it was bolstered by many others agreeing with them. Just because people agree doesn't mean that they're right. Right? Just because people say, you know what? Just because there's a protest doesn't mean that they're right. We have seen that in recent years. And so you can't please everyone. And when it comes to church life in the New Testament, you can't please everyone. No matter what you do, someone's going to find fault with it. People find fault with how you look, with how you dress, with how you do your music. Oh, it's too tame. It's not exciting enough. It's too boring. It's hymns. Hymns? Where's a rock and roll band? All these kind of things. They look for something to get the hype and be like the world. And so these things are going to happen. You can't please everyone. You realize this? You can't please everyone. You really can't. And uh, Moses could not please them. Moses, I asked the question, was Moses wrong? He wasn't wrong about anything. What was Moses doing? He was following what God told him to do. And all they had to do was follow Moses, the human figure of God leading them. And uh, they got tired. They got weary. They got a little bit, in, um, it was kind of inconvenient for them. And so they began to fuss. Well, uh, so what does Moses do? Moses practices James 1.5. Would someone find James 1.5? I'll read it for you real quick. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We'll give it to all men liberally. Okay? You know what Moses did before Genesis, uh, James 1.5 was read? He practiced that verse without even knowing it. He asked God for help. He asked God for wisdom. He sought God for counsel. I want to say before I move on here that in this period of mur murmuring again, and it says the congregation, the people, not everyone fussed, which is a good thing. Not everyone fussed. Let's see who did not complain and murmur. Look at verse number five. And the Lord said unto Moses, go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel. They didn't fuss. They didn't fuss. Look at verse number nine. Someone else did not murmur. After Amalek has attacked from the rear, verse number nine, and Moses said unto Joshua, choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Okay, so now you have uh, the elders who did not go along with the murmuring masses. Then you have men who are able to fight, men who are trained to fight, men who are 20 years and above. They were the ones ready to fight. They didn't go along with the murmuring. I think that because had they gone along with the murmuring, they would have said, forget you, Moses. We're not doing anything you want. You're a bad leader. Forget you. Well, they didn't say that. They went along. And then you have two other gentlemen, verse number 10. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him. Joshua and fought with Amalek. So he's down in the field with leading the soldiers to fight. And then Moses and Aaron and her. So you have... You have the elders didn't go along. Joshua didn't go along. Joshua, Joshua, faithful Joshua. Then you have Aaron and you have her. So all these were the exception to the murmuring masses of people. Now, if you were to put yourself in their situation, you don't want to be in the majority. You want to be in the minority. You want to be there among the people that will go along and have a part in the solution, not be a part of a problem and make the problem even bigger. 
So there are exceptions to this congregation, the elders, the fighting men, Aaron and her, including Joshua. Look at verse number four. Again, uh, when Moses was stuck, when he was about to react to the dissenting people, I remember Moses is not a robot. He's not AI. Nowadays you have AI. It's kind of scary, isn't it, AI? You listen to some audio on YouTube. It's not even a guy talking. It's not even a person talking. Somebody reading a book, audio book. Well, anyway, then you have um, robots that look like people. It's kind of creepy, I think. It's almost like science fiction. These uh, robots, they respond to you. Everything's programmed, but it's kind of eerie, don't you think? And so uh, Moses is not a robot. He's a man of flesh and blood like any man is. Elijah was a man of like passions, and yet he prayed. Moses is a man of like passions, and he was prone to getting angry. You know that, and we'll see that later on. Moses had feelings to anybody else. And so the people murmured against him. It affected him, but then he didn't react to it so soon. But he would soon react in his flesh. He turned to the Lord for guidance, and he asked God for wisdom. Look at verses 5 through 7. That's the continuation of murmuring. Murmuring. Verses 5 through 7. God gives a command. And the Lord said unto Moses, You ask me for a direction? Here's my direction to you. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, verse 6, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Verse 7, And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so we find the command of God telling Moses what to do because he needed some direction. And so he says, Go to this rock, strike the rock, and water will come out. Hit it with your rod. Now, in Numbers 21, the second time Moses comes to the rock, he was to speak to the rock. But in his haste and in his beating the flesh, he struck the rock. And striking that rock did something very bad. It was something very horrible because it affected his destination in the promised land. He would not go there. He would be prevented from God to go in because the rock was a symbol, a type, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Striking the rock the first time was a picture of Christ being crucified in the New Testament. And when he was supposed to speak to the rock the second time, instead he hit it, he hit the rock twice. Now, the, the typology, the symbol of the rock being Christ and being struck the first time was so, quote, striking. <laughs> it, was so, it was so important to God that Moses was prevented from going into the promised land because he did that. He disobeyed God. He was to just obey what God said without him understanding all the typology and the symbolism. Just do what I say. He didn't do that in his anger, in the flesh, and that prevented him from going into the promised land. That's how serious God took this typology about the rock being Christ, 1 Corinthians 10. And Numbers 21 is that second example of him hitting the rock. Instead of speaking to it. And so typology has great significance as far as God is concerned. And it does portray New Testament truth about a person or about a place or about an event. It's representing Christ in his death. Don't strike him again, the rock again, because when Christ died once, once for all. Don't have, there's no more sacrifice. No more. Once and for all, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Look at verse number seven. 
they chided Moses, and their big sin really was against God because the statement here is that they tempted the Lord, verse 7, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, logically, factually, practically, he was with them. How did he lead them by night? Pillar of fire. How did he lead them by day? A cloud. The cloud uh, and the pillar of fire, they had continual, continually the presence of God. So did he ever forsake them? Absolutely not. But they had, they had amnesia. They had early dementia. They forgot. They just couldn't remember. It's almost like a part of the DNA to have short memory. Now, most, most people get shorter memories or it seems like their memory is shorter or they forget things more as they grow older. Now, if you're over 50 years old, it seems like it begins to start you begin to forget things. Now, forgetting where you parked your car at Walmart is not part of it. <laughs> Everybody forgets when they parked their car at Walmart. No matter what your age. But uh, uh, they had they had short memory for sure. And it was more spiritual than anything else. More, not, not biological. It's just uh, they just got so caught up in the presence of some dilemma or some problem. And then they forgot about God. That's why the Bible tells us in the New Testament, we walk by faith, not by sight. If you walk by sight, you get terrified about tomorrow. You think about politics, you'd be terrified. You think about the justice system, you'd be terrified. You think about many things going on in this world, you'd be terrified. If you walk in by sight, you're terrified. But if you walk by faith, eyes on the Lord, and reality on the circumstances, you could have some more confidence and, and peace in your heart it's going to be okay because you have a God who knows tomorrow. You have a God who sees tomorrow. You have a God who is in tomorrow and yet he's in the present and he's right by your side. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Amen. You're not going to lack anything. All right, but they, they, sheep, they're so, we learn so many things about them or from them about ourselves. Would you agree to that? You learn about yourself by learning about them? Mm -hmm. All right. And so uh, he strikes the rock, water comes out. In verse number seven, the question, is the Lord among us or not? And I would say, are you kidding? I would say it like this, are you kidding me? How can you even say that? After all he has done, how could you even say that? Let's put it in modern times. If, if some benevolent person a neighbor, a neighbor, saw that you had a need, and your neighbor just graciously, without any of you, without you asking, just came up with a box of groceries, um, and uh, maybe you were sick and you couldn't go to work, and he offered, he barbecued some some steak for you, well done, of course, some baked potatoes and cream corn, and he made homemade bread, brought it over to you, just gave it to you. You said what? Uh, I heard you're sick. I just want to be a help to you. Would you say that person showed care for you and consideration and thoughtfulness? You could. And then, if that happened more than once in a week, you'd probably suspect him for being up to something. What does he want out of me? That is so unheard of today. But after a couple of weeks, he just does that, doesn't ask you for anything. And then some neighbor comes by and say, Oh, you having a hard time? Oh, did your neighbors help you? And you say, about the guy who just helped you six times. No, nobody cares for us. 
Yeah, my neighbor came by and said hi, asked how I was doing, but never did do anything practical for me. How dare he say that? After yeah. all he has done. Yeah. How dare the guy say that about the neighbor who was so benevolent? How dare he? How dare they say about God, uh, is he with us? Is he with us or not? How dare they say that? We're just like them. Now, I wonder who put that thought in her head. Let's think that's true. <laughs> they, they thought that, they said that, they murmured that. Who put their, that thought in their head? Guess who? Guess who? I wonder who could it be? Let me think here. I seem to remember that there was a place called the garden. I seem to remember that there was two people in the garden. I seem to remember there's another person in the garden. I seem to remember Genesis 3 where it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. I seem to remember that the serpent was real clever. Perhaps it was the devil whispering in the ears of a few people and in the ears of other people. A likely candidate. I wasn't there, I can't prove it, as people say. It doesn't mean it's not true. He's a likely candidate because the devil is murdered from the beginning. He's a liar and the father of it. Who would want to detract people's devotion to God anyway? Whenever you get a bad thought about God being unfaithful to you, God abandoning you, you just remember who that subtle creature is. It may have whispered to you before you fell asleep. I mean, you can't make rent and you can't make this, you can't, and you, things are just going really horrible, it seems like. Nothing, there's this, it's like, there is no light at the end of this long two-mile tunnel. You just remember who could be whispering thoughts into your head. Now, uh, could be could be him, could be the devil. All right. Whether you agree or not, uh, I suspect it was the devil who was more subtle. Now, look at verse number eight. You have so far a continuation of murmuring. A command from God, and now a combat, combat with Amalek. Verse number eight. Then came, then came Amalek. After the murmuring, after the people were griping about not having water, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now Amalek came from the rear. As they're moving this direction, they're going in this direction. He doesn't come to the front and confront the elders and confront Moses and Aaron. He comes from the back where people are looking forward or looking down or looking to themselves and murmuring. And so they're all moving this way. They come from the rear. Amalek is not just one person, but the Amalekites, they come. They come from the rear. They attack from the rear. Uh, look at 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15. Does your fingers sometimes get kind of uh, slippery where you can't turn Bible pages? I feel like my fingerprints are getting worn off. First Samuel chapter 15 and verse number one. Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, 
over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. Exodus 17. How he laid wait for them in the way when he came up from Egypt. And so Amalek, Amalek, the Amalekites came up subtly from the back, picking them off. It's kind of like lions, leopards uh, in Africa or places like that where they, there's a herd of uh, animals, zebras. You know who they pick on? They pick on the baby, the, the immature, the adolescent creature or animal that really is not so adept to defending themselves yet. That's who they pick off. And so this is what they did from the rear. In Deuteronomy 25, it says, uh, Amalekites, they came from behind. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse number 17, they came from behind. So they're moving forward. They're following Moses. And the people behind, they're not necessarily stragglers, but they're in the rear. And so they come from the rear to attack them from the rear, to surprise them. Now, uh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. It was a sneak attack. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a surprise. Caught America off guard. And uh, Hebrew people are caught off guard in a sense. But the Amalekites heard that they were coming and they planned to attack them strategically from the rear. Effectively. Now, in uh, the book of uh, Samuel Kings, the Amalekites once attacked the Hebrew people and they took away the women and children. And that's why David went off to find them and he found them in Ziklag and recovered the families of the people. So it seemed like the Amalekites would have taken people women and children especially, and other things too. And so um, this is what they did. And so Amalekites did that. And Amalek, Amalek represents something uh, to the New Testament church and New Testament Christian. It represents the flesh. It represents, they represent, he represents the flesh because the flesh fights against you as they fought against Israel after they were redeemed from Egypt. So the progression, redemption, emancipation freedom you're now on your walk for us we're now on our christian walk our, our walk with christ our walk to grow in christ and after we got saved out of egypt so-called we're now moving in a certain direction and during that time at first when you got saved were you not pretty happy when you got saved most of us were pretty happy when we got saved we just didn't show it some people are very emotional some people are pretty much like um like robots <laughs> they just have no feelings it appears that's me and some people like my wife very uh, much uh, expresses their feelings um, sometimes it's like that but what really happens if a man's truly saved his heart is happy he's rejoicing that he's not going to hell his sins are forgiven he's looking forward to the process to going to heaven he's very happy he wants to go to church he wants to have a bible he's excited he's happy nothing bothers him he goes to church, he thinks everyone is a saint, an angel. Everything is great. The singing is great, the preaching is great, everything is great. Everything is so good. And then after a period of time, maybe a few days, he settles down. And he gets a little bit noticing of things in church. Notices how people are gossiping. Notices how people are fussing about this and that. In the parking lot, he notices that people are honking their horns and fighting to get to the church. In the church parking lot, get a parking place close to the church. He's realized, and he's saying, what is going on here? What? He begins to feel like, wait a minute, are these people saved? And then he has feelings himself. So what I'm trying to convey to you is that after, after they've left Egypt, they've traveled just a few days, and then they're attacked by Amalek. 
Well, the flesh attacks us, quote, a few days after we calm down after our salvation experience. And we begin to feel it. We begin to see faults. We begin to see discrepancies. We begin to see people for what they are. They get mad. They're bitter. You hear them talk. They hate these people. They hear them talk about um, people in church. They hear all this stuff and they're thinking. And they begin to have doubts about if they really are saved. If they really, And then they have feeling. They're wondering if they're really saved too. So the subtle attacks of the flesh comes up after we are saved. And so uh, look at verse number. Uh, oh, by the way, Amalek attacked on her as I mentioned. And uh, they didn't see the attack coming. Just like we sometimes are unaware of when our flesh attacks us and gives us grief. It could happen after you've had water. It could happen when you don't have water. It could happen when you're on a high. Oh, God answers so many prayers. Oh, thank God for this. And then the next moment you feel this, you feel this, you feel this, because the flesh surprises you. Or when you're feeling weak, when you're feeling weak and you're feeling discouraged, the devil attacks you then, or the flesh attacks you then too. So it happens in both ways. Nonetheless, uh, the enemy attacks. The flesh, the flesh, the flesh always rise up and attacks. Let's look at chapter 9, uh, verses, I'm sorry, chapter, wait a minute, 17, 17, verse number 9 through 13. 9 through 13. Let me get back to Exodus. 9 through 13. And Moses, Amalek has attacked, and Moses, verse 9, said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said unto him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Verse 11. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand, up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Verse 12. But Moses' hand was heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. Can you imagine what you're seeing, what you're reading? And one on the other side, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady unto the going down of the sun. Verse 13. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now, uh, you have in these verses uh, a, a one-day victory over Amalek. Not a complete total victory, because Amalek would live on, the people live on, and give them grief throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And so, how did Israel fight back is my point. They fought back because, uh, and they fought back by these reasons, by these means. Uh, they found men who were fit to fight. They were men fit to fight. They were trained to fight. The Bible says in the Psalms that God is a man of war. And David rejoiced because God taught his hands how to war, how to fight. And so there was the necessity to have a group of young men who were trained to fight with their hands and with the tools that they had, with weapons. And so they fought back by getting the men who were trained to fight to fight. They didn't send people to fight that were not fit to fight. They sent men who were trained to fight. And so this is how Israel fought back. And then also uh, in chapter, uh, uh, in, in this chapter, Aaron and Hur held up the arms of Moses. They got a right, have him sit down, because he's weary, Hold, holds up his both arms. And when the arms are not, victory. Arms come down, Amalek won a skirmish and so on. And so you had different people doing different things to overcome the Amalekites on this day. Uh, men actually fighting hand-to-hand combat. You have two men holding up the hands of Moses. What are they doing besides holding up his hands? 
Well, the, the operation stance is symbolic of one thing. You know what that one thing is? It is symbolic of hands being outspread. It's symbolic of praying. And so a verse tells us uh, that Moses spread abroad his hands before the Lord. And uh, 1 Timothy 2.8 says this, by the way. 1 Timothy 2.8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. 1 Timothy 2.8. Now, that doesn't mean you have to lift up your hands to pray. It doesn't mean that at all. But it just means it's a symbol of praying. It's a symbol of reaching up to God in heaven and saying, we beseech you, we ask you, we, we, we need your help. Please help us. And that's what Moses was doing. And so a lot of symbolism there. What you want to learn is this. Some men were in the field fighting. Some men away from the field, up on the hilltop, holding up Moses' hand while he's praying. So you have a combination of fighting and praying. You have a combination of going to combat and warfare in, in prayer. You have a, both things going on. Now the result is verse number 13. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The results of praying and fighting is that they won. They won that day. Discomfited. They troubled them. They confused them. They vexed them. But they did not totally destroy the Amalekites. But the, that on that one day, they won that battle. They won that one. It was a baseball game of nine innings. They won this inning. But it's not over yet. And so uh, what you found is that for today, uh, uh, Amalekites, the Amalekite is still around. <laughs> it's in us, the flesh, still around. Now here's some lessons for us to learn uh, specifically about the New Testament Christian and the New Testament church. We have the flesh to contend with. Amalekite is all around with us and among us and he's in us. So how do you beat your flesh? Number one, number one, well, if you're interested in beating the flesh, number one, you have to face the fact that you have a problem with your flesh. Face it. Face the fact that you have to combat with your flesh. Now, um, you have to fight back. Face it, you have to fight back. Joshua's in the field. Moses, Aaron, and Hurt on the top of the hill, and they're praying. So you have a combination of prayer and practical things. Now look at Romans chapter 13. Combat in the flesh is a must because in our times as New Testament Christians, the flesh is very real because we're alive and we will have contention with them. The flesh will seek to hinder your walk with Christ and to discourage you and put you down and hinder your progress as a Christian. So you have to have the weapon of praying. And then in chapter 13 of Romans, verse number one. That is not what I wanted. The verse I'm looking for is make no provision for the flesh. Verse 14. My computer key, I told you, is at number four sticks. So I hit 14 and I got only one. 13 and one. All right, verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let Christ have control over you. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So you have a two-pronged defense against your flesh. Prayer. Prayer, prayer, trusting the Lord, trusting the Word of God, and also making a provision for the flesh. A lot of Christians are not victorious. A lot of Christians are defeated because they pray, but they do one thing wrong, I believe. Instead of not making provision for the flesh, 
they make provision for the flesh. They allow some things to exist in their life and that pulls them down. So make no provision for the flesh. Don't provide for the flesh. Don't be in a place, don't do something. Don't be where you're weak in this area of your life and you could be tempted and overcome by the temptation. So that is what you can do. Of course, there is the armor of God, all those other factors, but that's not the focus. Not the focus is uh, fighting against Amalek, your flesh, and um, uh, don't let him have anything to access to put his hooks in. The flesh is not totally defeated. You can defeat him today, and then when tomorrow comes, you can have victory of the flesh tomorrow. But you don't have total, complete victory over your flesh. Maybe until you die of the rapture. Until then, just like with the Amalekites. But until then, you can have daily victory, moment at a time even. Now, um, lessons from the New Testament church, number one, Moses is their leader. Moses is like their pastor. He is their shepherd, for real. And the people of God in the Old Testament are like sheep. They're like a flock. And Moses is like a shepherd. He was a shepherd for 40 years, remember, in the backside of the desert. And so now he's leading them. And so the lesson to learn is be good church members. Be good church members. Be good followers of the leader of the church. Be good people. Be good sheep. Very simple lesson here. And uh, everyone has their opinions. Everyone has their say so. Everyone has an opinion about something, which is not a problem. The problem is when people's opinions are, are, are forwarded and there's an insistence on doing things our way because I have an opinion. Well, who says everybody has to do what you want? <laughs> really? Who says Elon Musk has to do what you want as someone on the assembly line? You know Elon Musk, someone told me, Elon Musk is such a busy guy. If he ever comes to the factory floor, walks around, watches people work, if he stopped in admiration, and said, oh, Mr. Musk, Mr. Musk, can I shake hand? Oh, so glad to meet you. It is said by people working in California and California plant, they said, you'd be fired on the spot because you're wasting time. Whereas you thought, I just want to shake his hand. Because who meets him firsthand and face to face? Because busy, let's get the job done. This is our focus here. I pay you well. You got good benefits. Uh, so just, just be there and do what you need to do. And so it's been said by an employee that he will fire you on the spot. In fact, when they have the orientation, that's what the orientation is about as well. Don't stop to talk to him when he comes by, because he'll come by. Don't waste time to talk to him. Okay, right or wrong, um, and if you have an opinion about it, he may not listen to you, but that's okay. He's paying your salary. What else do you want? You want input? Well, there's a channel, I'm sure, for input, but I'm just simply saying the people of God uh, should be sensible about a lot of things and when it comes to murmuring and complaining about things, the truth is, it's much easier to find something wrong than it is to find something right. That is the truth. That's our human nature. And so, um, have you ever said to yourself about someone saying, that was really good what he did? Then you'd say, yeah, but. Have you ever said, yeah, but? I don't think so, because you're all saints here. But, uh, oh man, did you hear what? That was so good of him, her do that. Then you say, yeah, but, yeah, but. Why do you say, yeah, but? Why don't you bring up something negative? Just because you think you know something or you're aware of something, you want to show how much you know, whatever the reasons are, you got to be careful about being, yeah, but Christians because, you know, in a flock like this, 
Oh man, Moses, he, he was okay four days ago. He led us out there, you know, but, but man, what about now? You know what? I don't know. I, I think we need to get a new leader because right, we're, oh man, I walked 45 minutes without any water. What kind of, man. Yeah, but be careful about that. And so like Joshua, like Joshua, do what you're told. Joshua, run up some guys, go down there and fight. Yes, sir, Moses. Joshua probably had his own mind. Joshua is a man, he's his own man, but he was under authority of Moses. And Joshua, in many ways, a self-made man, in many ways, a great man, in many ways, a man of real character and integrity, a man who never fussed about Moses at all. He could have said, Moses, the people are complaining. And I'm not sure all the details, but I kind of think because they're all complaining, maybe there's something to it. I ain't gonna go and lead the fighters, the men to fight, unless you give me some clarification. He didn't talk like that at all, at least it's not recorded. Moses is an example of a very loyal man, a very loyal, faithful man. Aaron and her. Aaron later on would be unfaithful, but at the moment, he was faithful to hold up Moses' hands and her too. Those three guys are faithful men. You know what every church needs? Not three faithful men, but more faithful men. <laughs> every church needs people in the congregation that are just loyal, faithful, regardless of what they think. They're loyal enough to say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna follow and do it, what the Lord says through a person, through a man. And that's really helpful and that's really encouraging. And so, uh, like the fighting men, get to the work and fight. And so, uh, a, a good church needs good people. A good church needs a good pastor, and a good pastor needs good people to follow and to fight and to follow and to pray and all those kind of good things. And so resist the temptation, resist the whispering in the ear of finding reasons to fuss when it's not really that big of a deal. Now, uh, in a large church, you have a paid staff. Paid staff are paid to do a job description. So they do the work every day of the week, getting ready for Sunday, getting ready for services. They're doing visitation, they're doing counseling, they're doing this, they're doing that, they're doing this. they do all kinds of things that the pastor doesn't do himself, but he wants them to do certain things. And they follow orders, they follow, you know, and they do the right things, they do the things, and they give report, they have a lot of meetings because they're paid staff. And uh, so they get a lot of work done because of that factor. But in a small church, there's no paid staff. If there's no paid staff, it's all volunteers. And people don't volunteer, don't get done. If people volunteer and then drop it and give up on the thing and they and then don't follow through, then it still is not a good thing. You know what a good church needs? A good church needs good people. A good church needs good people to follow, to be loyal, to be faithful, and to do all these things and put down the fussing, put down the, the put down the, the complaining about things, put down we call it in the south, belly aching. Belly aching. Always gotta say something that's wrong that came up. Well, that was too long of a service. Well, he preached for 45 minutes this time. Before he was to preach only 40 minutes, now it's 45 minutes. He's gone five minutes over for the last six weeks. What's wrong here? Or he only preached for half an hour. I guess he wasn't prepared. Why must people think that way? And the, and the music guy, the music guy, plays the same songs from the hymnal that's got 500 songs. He picks the same ones every week. Seems like everyone would hear the same songs again. Every Thanksgiving we're here, great is thy faithfulness. <laughs> Why doesn't he have some imagination? Why are you fussing? You old Billy Goat, you old Hebrew from the Old Testament. <laughs> I tell you, this is the reality of the ministry. And so to 
to get through it, to encourage one another. Uh, there has to be proper, proper, appropriate support uh, of the church for for the pastor and the people are to be what they ought to be. The pastor be what ought to be. And uh, Moses, his hands had to be held up because he got fatigued. I make this point, and I'll stop here. That no matter what you think about the pastorate or a pastor, um, no matter where you are as a church member, long time or short time, you gotta remember this. The man who stands before you and preaches to you and teaches for you week by week, that man is just a man. That man gets weary. That man's hands get tired. So what you know what he needs? He needs somebody to help hold up his hands. By prayer and by, by helping in some practical way. Now, that practical way is really, here's what people think. They think money. Money is not the issue here. The issue is feeling like there is like there is support, there's uh, I'm behind you kind of feeling, see? That is priceless when the pastor feels like people are behind him. And so when there's an Aaron to hold this arm up, there's a herd to hold this hand up. That's a great feeling. And when you don't have the feeling, you feel bad. Yeah. You feel bad. You feel horrible. I cannot tell you how that feels because you won't understand. There's a man in North Carolina, a Nathan knows the pastor in Roxburgh, North Carolina. You talk about you talk about hurting his feelings. Uh, one day he told me, this pastor told me, one day on a Saturday, he was at church getting ready for Sunday, last minute kind of thing. And then uh, when he got up to leave to go home, he found at the door of the church, at the entry, a bag. He opened that bag. It was a sun, set of Sunday school lessons. The Sunday school teacher after 12 years just dropped it off. And he says, I'm leaving, bye. Well, this is Saturday. No forewarning prior to, no opportunity to talk things through. He was miffed about something. He probably kept it in for a long time. And he said, I'm gone. Tried to call him, no reply. Go by to see him, no answer, no door. What do you do? And so that man, that good man, had a problem with one Sanskrit teacher after 12 years who just up and quit for no reason that he knew. Well, he would want to, well, what? Well, let me explain that one. Oh, okay, well, I, I misunderstood that. Okay, so we good now? No opportunity for that. So that really was bad. He was not a Joshua. He was not an Aaron. He was not a Hur. I don't know the man personally, but I know the pastor personally. And that was a real stick, a knife stuck right in the gut. Not in the back, but in the gut. Okay, it was a mortal blow. And so you never really get over that. You also become suspicious after things like that. And so he, he lost someone whom, who was faithful, who was loyal, but then something happened, who knows? Who knows what happened? Don't know. And uh, we've had that happen in our church too. People have left without any hint no opportunity for me to, uh, well, well, what's going on here now? See, so what can you do if you can't have any communication? So Moses and the Hebrew people, they teach lessons for the New Testament church and the New Testament Christian. Amen. Let's learn the lesson and not repeat the mistakes. Right. Resist, resist the things that, that keeps you from following Christ wholeheartedly. Resist those things. Okay? Fight it. Pray. Okay, practical things. Make no provision for the flesh. All right. Now I need to make provision for my flesh. There's some refreshments back there. I need to get to that.
Let's take a short break and come back. Okay.